0: Think about all the people who've influenced you and made a huge difference in your life. Think about the people you admire most, who may have changed your thinking or even helped to establish a sense of identity. Well, this is Mark Thompson and welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I have an adventure that I lead each and every day coaching chief executives and C-suite executives who are on their way to the corner office and beyond in making a difference in organizations. So you might be surprised to hear that a person who's changed my life the most, who's influenced it from this point of view of both philosophy, spirit, and impact is Maya Angelou. The famous poet, a woman who's a prolific writer, award-winning activist and a person who has changed the world in many many different ways. Maya had the privilege of reinventing herself over and over again throughout her life in ways that we can only envy and so I sought her out and at first she was a bit resistant to see me a a business guy not certain what my motivations might be but we were able to connect at her home during her lifetime in the America's South, where she would work and teach, pray and love and really inspire millions of people. Listen to this conversation with Maya Angelou as she teaches me her seven sacred promises, promises she made to herself and others about how to make a better life and more meaning in every single breath. Sometimes I feel like
1: a motherless child A long ways from home A long ways from home
0: Maya Angelou found her way home a long, long time ago. But home for Maya has never been so much a place as it's been a way of life. She promised herself long ago that she'd live a life filled with purpose, a life focused on listening for that elusive whisper, that mysterious voice that energizes and aggravates us, that siren song about life's purpose and meaning. I'm Mark Thompson. When you meet Maya, you know instantly that she has the secret formula. And she's made that gift work for her with what I call the seven sacred promises, promises that have guided her remarkable journey. There's something
1: so sacred in each of us. I would not
0: be casual about this gift of life. Part of Maya's secret is that she decided long ago to grab life with both hands, to embrace it with passion, and to feel every part of it. To not try to
1: live fully is to say to the Creator,
0: I really don't appreciate
1: this This incredible cornucopia.
0: I felt that abundance when Maya invited me to her home. It was a windy day in the Wake Forest, where she lives in North Carolina, at the height of the fall color. You know the kind of day. Cloudless cobalt blue sky, sunshine igniting each leaf like gold foil, trees rustling like rushing water. And when the wind blows like that, it feels like someone is trying to speak to me, their voice just out of reach. The taxi dropped me off in front of a perfect powder blue house. Maya lives up a long, quiet street where that particular morning The swirling wind and sunshine made the brilliant red, yellow, and orange leaves swarm like butterflies around the front door. I have to admit I was a little nervous. The word is that Maya doesn't suffer fools well and I wondered whether the voices in the trees might in fact be warning me away. I was quickly reassured as I stepped inside the door to the smell of cookies, coffee, and comfort food. Maya's homemaker showed me to the living room where I waited next to a soaring window at least 20 feet high that looked out on the forest. The swirling leaves made the plate glass window look like one of those huge aquarium exhibits with the colorful schools of fish chasing all about. Maya put her hand on my shoulder. I turned to find a six-foot ebony masterpiece in a flowing black and gold gown. If only I looked that good after three-quarters of a century. She gave me a hug and sank deep into her favorite chair across from the fireplace. Her African jewelry sounded like wind chimes as she shifted in her seat to face me. As we sat knee to knee, we talked about joy and fear, passion and sacrifice, about our children. And during that magical morning, I found what I call the seven sacred promises. Promises that Maya makes to herself that define her elegant secret to life. Promises we should all make to ourselves on the path to happiness. Let's take a brief moment to review all seven promises, and then I'll come back and take a more leisurely walk through each one of them. The first promise I call permission to feel. Permission to feel means that you're experiencing all dimensions of what life has to offer, not just the urgent things, not the things that you've got to do later today or the things you wished you'd said yesterday, not all that mess of thoughts and doubts that crowds our mind like Times Square. I'm talking here about witnessing the present or being mindful. This experience, this life,
1: is our one time to be ourselves. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's such an incredible gift. The present
0: is a present. It is a gift. And those rich, treasured moments? Some of them can be scary. That's where my second promise comes in. Promise number two, join your fear. Joining your fear is about turning what scares you from a paralyzing fear into a source of primal power and action in your life. My mother once said, if something frightens you,
1: join it. The fear can help us to love life
0: if we can admit it. And by joining your fear, You've given yourself permission for the third promise, promise number three, don't pick it up. Don't pick it up means don't take it personally, not the good things or the bad.
1: As the West Africans say, I don't pick that up, I don't lay it down. If I do, then when someone says to me of my work and my life, you really are a hack. You're an exhibitionist too. It's also a liar. I've had all those things said. I say, ah, thank you. I don't
0: pick that up, I don't lay it down. You see, if I picked up the one, I have to pick up the other. When you don't pick up either one, you have the power to change things in your life. The fourth promise is all about that. Promise number four, change your view. Some things don't change the way you want them to, but Maya has a strategy for that. It's if I can't change it, I change my position. looking
1: at it and there by seeing it from a different angle I might be able to change it or I might find some good in it that I can use which might make it change itself
0: and that's a special kind of faith isn't it you don't have to change everything and you don't have to know everything and that brings us to promise number five you don't know it all you don't know it all so just make peace with that Just focus on what you do know and what you love and leave it at that. Because after all, as Maya would say, humility and gratefulness pick up where hubris dropped you off, sister. This is about gratefulness, and this is where we learn the best lessons.
1: It is said that one has so many teachable moments. My grandmother caught me at every one of (laughs) mine. My grandmother says, sister, there's enough you didn't know to make a brand new world. I used to know a lot, but with each year I see I know so little.
0: And humility and gratitude generates enormous personal power. The question is, what will you sacrifice to find your way, to find your passion in life? That's promise number six, your personal sacrifice. In other words, what will you do against all odds? What must you do? Well, you know, by what will you sacrifice to do it? And that sacrifice is your passion. Or at least it's one of your real passions. It's part of the centerpiece to your noble quest for meaning and purpose in your life. But it's more than a sacrifice. You have to claim your place in life. That's promise number seven. Claiming it. That means don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be rescued or even healed. For Maya, the secret of life is right there waiting for us when we take charge of our recovery. Claiming resuscitation claiming recovery, claiming healing.
1: I mean literally claiming it, because if I am worrying the air with my uh, concern, then I have nothing to give to my sis. You can't simply sit on the
0: sidelines and bemoan one's outcast state. It is not enough. And in 75 years, Maya never allowed herself to be defeated. She's claimed every opportunity, although some would say she had every right to stay in poverty. She was born Marguerite Johnson in St. Louis on April 4, 1928, and was raised in segregated rural Arkansas. In her early teens, she gravitated quickly to the theater with a passion for drama and dance.
1: And when I was dancing, dancing was
0: central. In the 60s, she got to know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr who asked her to become the Northern Coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I think of
1: Dr. King, Malcolm X, as men of their time. You know, the philosophers say some people are born great,
0: others achieve it, and others have it thrust upon them. It turns out that all three of those conditions were also true for Maya Angelou. Her second passion, writing, launched a new career as the first African American woman to hit the bestseller list with a book called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. This autobiographical account of her youth was also a groundbreaker for black women on television, winning critical acclaim in 1970 and was a 2-hour TV special. She has written and produced several prize-winning documentaries and was nominated for an Emmy Award for her acting in the widely acclaimed program Roots. She has published more than 10 best-selling books, earning her Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award nominations. Today, she is a poet and historian, author, actress, and playwright, civil rights activist, producer, and director. She lectures around the world and is a professor of American Studies at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, not far from the home where we met to do this interview. I asked Maya about the promises that she makes to herself. Sacred promise number one, permission to feel. The first promise is permission to feel, the permission to keep all your senses alive, or as Maya says, to be a fully sensual person. I would love to explore the force of different emotions and crises in our lives that help contribute to this creative focus that you've been talking about. One of those is sensuality. Mm You are a very sensual woman. Absolutely. I feel it in your writing. I feel it in your presence now. And sexuality, which is a different thing, also plays a role. Different, yes. Different,
1: but including everything. I mean, sexuality it does include sensuality and loss and hope and so much. So it includes so much of the soul. This experience, this life, is our one time to be ourselves. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's such an incredible gift. The present is a present. It is a gift. And to not try to live fully is to say to the Creator, I really don't appreciate this This incredible cornucopia. I really don't. I'm not going to enjoy color, music, or order, or disorder. I just refuse, I'm just not, no, just include me out. Well, it's amazing that the creator doesn't say okie-dokie and thump you right, right back into, being a nonentity. There's no such person, of course. No such person as a nonentity.
0: It's so deeply uh, ingrained, I don't know where it comes from. We certainly are we're primal beings, so we, we run on lots of fear. Yeah. And that's a great way to suppress the senses. That's anesthesia. Yes, but that also can be a great way to
1: exercise the senses. Mm. If you allow it and admit it, you allow the body to furnish you with the chemicals which help you to run faster and to breathe more deeply and to sense, to have that frisson, put the cockney and say, that which makes me come all over queer. Yes. There's a a drug which our body makes for us. Adrenaline. Adrenaline. The fear can help us to love life, if we can admit it.
0: Sacred promise number two, joining the fear. And fear, the things that scare you for whatever reason in your life, those are what make the second sacred promise so important. Maya calls it joining the fear.
1: My mother once said, if, something frightens you, join it. Join the fear. Tell yourself, yes, I'm scared. Now, she said, do you realize when a snake comes up to a bird that the bird could just fly up over the snake and get onto a tree or go to another tree, or, but the bird doesn't know to admit that it's afraid. You not have to participate in everything so if you participate in the fear if it's a person who frightens you and you participate in it say yes I'm afraid and if I'm this scared I'm dangerous because I'm going to fight for my life I'm not passive this is very important to participate
0: I'm having an epiphany as we speak here in processing because we're talking about being present for the fear, embracing the fear, yeah. and that's the power in it. Mm-hmm. Then you take over the power. Mm-hmm. You bring your power back. That's right. My mother was a
1: short lady, short person. I'm six foot, so she was about five four. Years ago, I was living in New York, and she came out to visit me. A very well-known person gave a dinner party for me and sent a limousine. So we got into the limousine and another person who is white and who was a friend of my host, so he was riding, he was picked up, and then we went to pick up another woman who lived in a building on Riverside Drive and 151st Street. The building used to be a beautiful and beautifully maintained building with with a doorman and good rugs on the floor in the lobby and sofas. The building next door across the street was turned into a druggers' building. So everything was taken out. The building my friend lived in was trashed. And so we went there to pick her up. My mother said to this television um, executive, come, let's go and pick up the writer. So I said, no, Mother, I will go. She said, you sit there. I said, Mom, the building has changed dramatically. You can't even ring the apartment. I said, please let me go. She said, no. And she took the man and they walked in and my mom knew that my friend lived on the sixth floor. They walked into the building, got into the elevator, pushed the sixth floor, and the elevator went down to the basement, and a very dirty, mean person got home and saw this little black woman and this frail white man. He said, how far are you going? My mother said, I'm going all the way. And she put her finger, she said, I came here to go all the way. They got to the first floor. He walked out. Power.
0: Yes. It's not instinctive necessarily, is it? Or intuitive. Why is this such a life mystery?
1: Because we deny it. We are told, you know, a nice person, you can't fight for your own. Let someone else do it for you. What is this about? I don't know. I don't know. This lack of personal accountability for you. That's right. For your own life and lifestyle, but I know that that phrase is misused, but the way in which you live it. I love life. I love the idea of a God. I would not be casual about this gift of life for anything. Mind you, I'm not in love with life the difference. If you end up with it, you'll do anything to keep it. Well, I won't. Mm.
0: I won't live at any cost. You've made a similar comment about the neediness that a lot of us have in many times of our lives to have to be with other people, too, Mm. at all costs, Mm. when often we're better off alone. Yes.
1: Well, the cost is you give up yourself and there's something so sacred in each of us. I don't know how I know this or how I knew it, but by the time my son was uh, seven, I taught him that there was a place inside himself so sacred that no one had the right to walk in there. Nobody. No mother, father, no wife, husband, no no child, nobody. Because that may be the place you go to to meet God when you die. That place must be pristine. And it is your responsibility to keep it pristine. So, if you don't, if you allow any brute to come in trashing that place, what happens to you? Where do you go for solace inside yourself? Can't
0: do that. When were you last there to seek sanctuary? This morning. And
1: I'm going in there quite frequently these days because I have a friend who is not well. I go to that place often to commune, to put my own soul mm, at ease. Because if I am worrying the air with my uh, concern, then I have nothing to give to my sis. In the biblical story, the prodigal son risked and for a time lost everything he had because of an uncontrollable hunger for company. First, he asked for and received his inheritance, not caring that his father, from whom he normally would inherit, was still alive, not considering that by demanding his portion, he might be endangering the family's financial position. The parable relates that after he took his fortune, he went off into a far country, and there he found company. Wasteful living conquered his loneliness, and riotous companions consumed his restlessness. For a while he was fulfilled. But he lost favor in the eyes of his friends. And as his money began to disappear, he began to slip down that steep road to social oblivion. His condition became so reduced that he began to feed the hogs. Then it worsened until he began to eat with the hogs. It is never lonesome in Babylon. Of course, one needs to examine who or in the prodigal son's case, what he has for
0: company. Can you remember a time or describe a time to me when you started to be aware that your writing was making a difference in changing the way people think? Was there a time when you started to be particularly prescient of what impact this might be having on people? I don't think it's wise to do
1: that. I think it is wise to continue to work but to try to gauge the impact ill uses creative energy and might lead the writer or the dancer or the sculptor or the musician or the brick mason or the nurse away from the calling and into the reward outside oneself. The reward for the doing is the doing. When people say to me of my work that it's great and I say thank you. I don't stick with that as West Africans say I don't pick that up I don't lay it down if I do then when someone says to me of oh, my work and my life you really are a hack you're an exhibitionist too it's also a liar I've had all those things said I say ah thank you I don't pick that up I don't lay it down You see, if I picked up the one, I have to pick up the other. And my work isn't done.
0: I still have my work to do. Don't take it personally from the public one way or the other. No. You
1: can't. You dare not. From anybody, individuals or the collective public. Nathaniel Hawthorne said, easy reading is damned hard writing. To write the paragraph, the page, so well that a reader is 30 pages in a book before he knows he's reading, that is the goal. I have that to say, I have what to say. Sometimes I'm met in airports or supermarkets. And people say, oh, Miss Angelo, I wrote your book last year, and oh, I love it so much. That means that the person has ingested the work so thoroughly that she or he thought he made it up. That's it. That's what I try for, and I make it every now and again for a few minutes. Then... Whatever teaching I have to do is taught by a method which I learned in West Africa, I learned the name of. When I taught in Ghana, friends and colleagues would tell me, Sister, you are successful because you use blow, bat, and blow method. I was learning Fanti, I never could find those two consonants, B L, bl blah, together. So what on earth was blow, bite, and blow? And it turned out it was English, and they were saying blow, bite, and blow. And the method describes what a mosquito does. The mosquito blows on the skin until it's partially anesthetized and bites and then blows again and is gone. So the blow, bite and blow suggests that that's what you can do. You can be so, so subtle that you can give the message and the people are so busy laughing or enjoying the art that they don't get, that they don't know the artifice. But if you write that well, you can do that. There's a South American writer born in the 1800s, named Machado de Assis. In the 50s, I read a book of his, and It was nice, episodic. I went back and read it again. About six months later, I read it again. Thought, I didn't know all of that, and where did I get that idea? And I realized that reading him was like going down to the seashore to watch a sunset, standing there watching the sunset until the sun set, and then turning around to find that while I was down there, the tide had come in over my head. That was it. Now, to write that well,
0: Reach in the soul. Really. And be welcome there before they've even answered the doorbell. That's right. the relative had told you that when you look at your, your life and your life purpose and there's things about yourself you don't like, change them. My grandmother. What you can, was it your grandmother? My grandmother. You come to a certain point where you can't change no. the rest. You have to change the way you see it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She said, sister, if you don't like
1: anything, then do your best to change it. But if you can't change it, then change the way you think about it. What I've deduced that to mean is if I can't change it, I change my position of looking at it. And there, by seeing it from a different angle, I might be able to change it. Or I might find some good in it that I can use, which might make it change itself. But I'm not just going to continue to beat the head against an iron post. I might be able to uh, find a way if I don't just look at only the iron post. I might find, ah, there's concrete at the bottom. This post is set in concrete. Now water can wear away concrete. Hmm. Ah, you see, and so the way I look at it, the way I think about it, helps me to ultimately change it. That's how I, what I deduce her
0: from her lesson. When she told you that, were you in a place for it to be useful for you? Oh. When was the time when that actually Mama worked for you? told me that when it was
1: about seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was so incredible. I left her at 13. By that time, she had had such such influence on me. It is said that one has so many teachable moments. My grandmother caught me at every one of mine. (laughs) When uh, complainers would come into the store my grandmother would call me from wherever I was and say, sister come here and stand behind the counter. She would say to the Customer. How do you feel this morning, Mr Shepherd? And the man would say, Oh, Sister Henderson, I hate the winter. I just hate it. It's cracking my skin and I just can't get warm my hands or so and my grandmother would say, Mm-hmm. And then look at me with piercing eyes, like, did you hear that? Or in the summer, she, the person would come in and Mama would ask, How do you feel, Sister Williams? Oh, I hate the summer, Sister Henderson. I just hate it, you know. It just, my scalp makes me itch and my skin. And, and then when the person would leave, she would call me. She said, Sister, there are people all over the world, white and black, rich and poor, who went to sleep when that person went to sleep. They will never wake again. Their beds have become their cooling boards. Their blankets have become their winding sheets. And they would give anything but just five minutes of what that person was complaining about. I tell you, my grandmother did that. She got to me.
0: Listening to Maya talk about the gratitude she had for her mother and grandmother, and the lessons they provided her, and the sacrifices they made for her, I had to ask her about her role as a parent and how that fits into sacred promise number six, your personal sacrifice. That special purpose in life that motivates us to make sacrifices. But there's also no holding back when you're a parent. This
1: is something. You can't contain it, being a parent. It's just ecstasy to stick around. When she hands you, her child.
0: Gaga. I've cried more in the last three years a than price. I have in the last 45. That's a choice. She's a woman now growing up in this world. Yes. And like most parents, I'm afraid for her uh, and, and excited no. for her. Yes. Concerned.
1: Please let me encourage you not to use the word afraid. Don't, don't even let her hear it. Concerned, that's good. Concerned that she might put her hand on a hot stove, or trip over a stone in the street, or any of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, be concerned, but not afraid. I would say to a parent, if you leave them alone with love, they're generally all right. The parent must. Love the child and let him, her, know you are loved. There will be the inevitable clashes, personalities that have their own eccentricities and perversities. You can disagree without at all threatening the love. Really see that person as the most incredible gift who you want to provide for, not just the food and the shelter and the clothes, but you want to provide a world. If we would do that, we would register to vote, be more active and the eradication of racism and sexism and ageism and aids and breast cancer and prostate cancer we would be more active
0: i wish that for all of us at one point in your life i remember you writing about how obviously you love to sing and you love to dance and you love to to teach both of those and that's part of your soul at the same time you you came to a point in your life where you ultimately i think i wrote it down here actually in fact that that i didn't care enough about my singing to make other people appreciate it that's right is that a matter of the difference between making a living and making a life absolutely i have a decent voice
1: But voice itself is not the criterion, because if that was so, Ray Charles, Willie Nelson, and Louis Armstrong (laughs) would hardly be in it. None of those men have great voices, singing voices, and yet all three of them can make you weep or make you laugh just the moment you hear the voice. You
0: know it so well, it's such a good human voice. Authentic and that's real right, that's and, right. and a good storyteller. Yes, yes. But that was a time when you had to kind of find the difference between the avocation and, and your life's that's mission? Right. That's right. And singing, I enjoy it.
1: I enjoy hearing it very, very much. It's a marginal activity for me. Writing is central. Teaching is central. And when I was dancing, dancing was central. How do you know the difference? Well, you know by what will you sacrifice to do it. I wouldn't sacrifice a party to sing. I wouldn't sacrifice a a weekend. But I'd give up a week to write on a poem and a week to teach a class, I work at doing research and put my head down and not even notice that the time has passed for two weeks in order to teach one class to reach however many students I'm likely to reach or to write one good page of prose.
0: Let me ask you a question about your creative process when you're writing your poetry or you're writing your books? Is there a routine for you? Is there a place? How does this work?
1: I keep a hotel room in my
0: town. And
1: I try to go there if it's spring and summer and fall. I try to leave the house about 530. So I get up, shower, have coffee, and then go to the hotel i like to be in the room by 6. In the room, I have a Roger's Thesaurus, a dictionary, the Bible, yellow pads, pens, and a bottle of Sherry, and a deck of playing cards. I stay in the room until about, well, always till 12. If the work is going well, I may stay till 1. And then I leave. The hotel knows I don't want anybody in my room, nobody. No cleaning up, nothing, nothing. And I have everything taken off the walls, everything. And usually after a month or so, the management will slip a note under my door asking me to please allow them to change the sheets. (laughs) They're sure they're molding and But I've never used the bed, ever. I come home and take another shower and put on fresh clothes, and sometimes I go to the supermarket, try to get out and let air blow in my ears and through my eyes and try to see the world and be a part of it. Because when I'm writing, I really am apart from it.
0: Present, and yet... Present in my head, mm-hmm. and in my heart, Present. So you're, you're physically creating a place, a space, mm-hmm. a physical space yeah. where you have complete permission, no yeah. distraction. Yeah. I play solitaire.
1: At the end of a month, a deck of bicycle cards, I mean, really good cards, will feel like Kleenex. Because, again, mama, grandmother used to say, I didn't know that. My grandmother insisted, there's enough you didn't know to make a brand new world and don't let it even get on your little mind. And I've determined, and this is probably from three or four years old, that one could have a little mind and a big mind. And it seems when I'm playing solitaire that I'm occupying my small mind, which means that I can go down into the deeper mind and not be distracted.
0: When you think about the poetry that you've written, are there poems that you remember that Give you courage or refresh you at times when you need to be oh yeah picked up not my own I'm sure I have my
1: own too but I go to the varying poets I go to Paul Lawrence Dunbar for uh, his poem Sympathy one of the great poets he was African American one of the great poets period he wrote I know what the caged bird feels, Ah, Army. when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind blows soft through the springing grass and the river floats like a sheet of glass, when the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals. I know what the caged bird feels. I know why the caged bird beats its wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars, for it must fly back to its perch and cling when it fain would be on the palace swing. And the blood still throbs in the old, old scars. It pulses again with a keener sting. I know why it beats its wing, And I know why the cage bird sings. Amen. When its wings are bruised and its bosom sore, it beats its bars and would be free. It's not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that it sends from its heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven it flings. I know why the caged bird sings." You see? So I use that. I use Innocent Vincent Millay. And you have to see Millay as a small white woman in the 20s and 30s about to become the recluse she did become. She wrote, I shall die, but that is all I will do for them. I hear his horses in the stalls. He has business this morning, business in Cuba, business in the Balkans, but he must mount by himself. I will not give him a leg up. I will die, but that is all I will do for them." with his horse's hooves on my chest. I will not tell him where the black boy lies hidden in the swamp. I will not map him away to any man's door. Brothers and sisters, the keys and the plans to this city are safe with me. Through me you will never be overcome, for I shall die, but that is all I will do for death.
0: Mm. And so many of us are willing volunteers. Yeah, I know, haven't signed up for life, yeah. really
1: <laughs> willing, to, <laughs> willing to, to go and be a handmaiden or a handmaid or handman, a valet to dance.
0: Walkin's most too slow There's been a cult of personality. We kind of want our role models and leaders to be attractive and charismatic and, and superficial. Yeah. But you described one of the greatest leaders as a very average-looking man, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Tell me about him, and tell me about where his greatness came from.
1: Well, I think of... Dr. King, Malcolm X, as men of their time. You know, the philosophers say some people are born great, others achieve it, and others have it thrust upon them. But I think all three of those conditions maintained with both those men. They were born with certain components. They were men, spirits up to their potential. And they had leadership thrust upon them by life and time. So when that many
0: elements are working together, you can't avoid it. I always misunderstood that statement to mean that the whole package came with one of those.
1: Oh, no. Some people are born and they they have it in them, but they do not. They're not in their times. In one of the soliloquies, Hamlet says, the time is out of joint. For some people who have the wherewithal to, give their best and have it mean something are out of joint. Max Roach, the drummer, the great percussionist, told me there were people in the cotton fields who could sing better than Maria Jackson or Lily Pons, and people who could dance better than Fred Astaire or Sammy Davis, Jr. So some people are born with it, but the time is out of joint. So they do not work at it because they are not in a place to work at it. I don't know what God does with them. It's back to Walt Whitman when flowers bloom unseen. What happens? They come back again and maybe are brought into the foreground this time. I don't know. Or
0: a whole story plays out (laughs) in the unseen forest. In
1: the unseen by human beings forest, yes. So maybe no one writes about them, but bees like it and birds and caterpillars and things. Maybe. I don't know. I know so little. I used to know a lot, but... With each year, I see I know so little.
0: Can you remember a time when you look back at so many challenges in your life? Can you think of a time where the worst experience ended up later serving you as as one of the best experiences? I don't know if
1: that's ever so. I don't know that. The worst and the best experiences are lessons. I think of the story of Joseph and his father. And his grandmother told it to me 200 times. As I later read it, But I always remembered my grandmother who said Joseph was a nice little boy and his father adored him and his father gave him a coat of many colors. And his brothers were so jealous that they stole Joseph and threw him down in a pit. And then they beat Joseph and they took his coat and sold him to a pharaoh. And the pharaoh kept noticing this enterprising young person, and he took a fancy to him and brought him in, and he said, let me see how far this boy will go. And Joseph just continued to work and keep a a cheerful aspect. Finally, Joseph designed the bins which protected the grain from vermin. This is almost exactly my grandmother, 60 years ago. She said, and then there was a famine in the land. The father of Joseph, who still was grieving the absence of his darling, told the sons, go to the Pharaoh and see if we can't get some grain. The famine is about to finish us. And so they went to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh said, well, maybe we can help you, but you have to go and talk to our minister of agriculture. That was Joseph. (laughs) So (laughs) when the sons reached Joseph, they recognized Joseph. Joseph pretended not to recognize them. Joseph let them stew for a couple of days. And finally, he asked them, do you have a father? And is he still alive? And they said, yes. And finally, he said, I know who you are. And according to the Bible, the brothers were sore afraid, S-O-R-E, were sore afraid. Joseph said, don't worry about it. Because what you meant for evil, God turned it into good. Well, God turned it into good along with Joseph. And there's another story I like about a man in a really run-down neighborhood who um, kept passing an empty lot with just rubbish and old cans and tires and everything. And it just got on his nerves, so he just took it as his business to clear up that lot. Every Saturday he would go and work at the lot. And finally he got it cleared, and it looked pretty good. So he brought some earth in, some good dirt in. So he decided to plant something. So he planted a lot of seeds. And then he watered and kept looking after, and the things came up. So he took the harvest, to the church and the preachers said oh my god we've been watching that it is wonderful what the lord has done with that lot we're reaping the benefits god is good so the man said yes god is good and god has done a lot but did you see that lot before i stepped in there to help when god had it all by himself So I think that we have to show up and help. We have to participate. In recovery, you can't simply sit on the sidelines and bemoan one's outcast state. It is not enough. Claiming resuscitation, claiming recovery, claiming healing, I mean literally claiming it. I love a song of Bob Dylan's, in which he says, You've got to serve somebody. There's no such thing as being passive. You are either doing that or you're doing this. And doing nothing is doing. It's important to see that.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you, you for, your much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: You, so
0: uh, you touched my heart. Thank
1: That's you. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.